But this show will continue to help you understand the things that affect your health while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. It will also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions like this one. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive of rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, Dr. Debbie, before we jump into all our questions around brain fog and perimenopause and menopause, I'd love to know what brought you to this space. What happened or what did you see in your patients that made you really dedicate your life to exploring this topic? I actually am trained in neurology and cognitive neurology, and that generally means taking care of patients with dementia. And about 25 years ago, I saw a patient at Columbia where I was a young faculty member who was in her 50s, and she came in with significant cognitive loss, inability to function, and we did a full full evaluation on her, including a spinal tap. And after a consensus conference with a whole bunch of physicians, geriatricians, psychologists, et cetera, at the hospital, we decided that this woman likely suffered from Alzheimer's disease. And I sadly had to tell her that this was the case. And at that time, there was very few medications available to treat Alzheimer's. So I put her on the medication that was available, which was donapazole. But I also decided to add a little bit of estrogen because there had been a recent study that said that perhaps estrogen helps keep people with Alzheimer's out of nursing homes. So I thought she's young, she's in her 50s, she has this condition, let me put her on some estrogen. So I put her on estrogen and then she came back about six months later and she said, you know, I'm cured. All my symptoms are gone. And I thought to myself, well, clearly that can't be true. But in fact, when we did testing on her, we found that most of her deficits had resolved. And in fact, it was I who was mistaken that she didn't really have Alzheimer's, that her cognitive loss was related to menopause, and she had had a late life menopause, and that may be why she had had those symptoms, and giving her estrogen seemed to have cured her. And that's what started me on my quest of taking care of and trying to define the cognitive changes around menopause and perimenopause. Wow. So many questions. So first, that must have been staggering to see, because I think that when we see patients with a diagnosis like Alzheimer's, you're generally anticipating a trajectory that's hopefully somewhat of a plateau for as long as possible before things start getting worse and worse and worse. You don't necessarily anticipate seeing someone feeling like they're back to normal with an intervention. So that's amazing. So my first question is, 
For the listener who's thinking, well, then why don't we just put every woman around the type of perimenopause who's complaining about these types of symptoms on HRT or estrogen? What's the response to that? I would say my research and the research of others supports evidence that up to 60% of women going through menopause across cultures around the world have cognitive impairment. They complain of memory problems. Actually, about the same percentage of women who complain of night sweats and hot flashes. So a significant number of women have cognitive loss. But you can't just put everybody on hormone replacement. There are some people who may have memory problems because they're not sleeping well because of the hot flashes. And there, there are side effects with any kind of medication. There's the risk of blood clots. You don't want to just, in a cavalier way, put people on something unless there's need for it. I think that's a very, very, very important point because though it's really common, 60% of women experiencing brain fog, I know that for me, whenever I'm having word-finding difficulties or things that I feel like I should remember, I'm always trying to parse, is this because I just haven't slept? Is it because I'm stuck trying to balance so many things? Is this perimenopause? What could be going on? And I think it's such an important point to your point that we have to sort of individualize treatment based on kind of really trying to dissect what are the components that are creating this issue. Can you talk a little bit about how the shift in our hormonal cycling during perimenopause and menopause leads to brain fog or is linked to brain fog? What is the connection? So what happens during menopause is a bunch of different things happen. When you have estrogen loss, there's a reduction in what's called the dendritic spine density and synapse formation in the parts of the brains that are important for memory, like the hippocampus and the basal forebrain. And that, you know, has been proven in animal studies. And in humans, when we're going through our 40s into our 50s, we have a decrement in synaptic density and it may be accelerated by early menopause and early loss of estrogen. And then chemically, there's reduced acetylcholine and reduced serotonin in the brain at that time. And so this combination can exacerbate the cognitive loss that women notice. And just to tell you, it's not just that they notice the cognitive loss. We do testing. There's objective evidence of cognitive loss. Just like in my patient that I mentioned earlier, enough so that sometimes it mimics something like Alzheimer's, even though it's not. And then the high levels of cortisol that happen during hot flashes, that also can worsen memory. So there's a bunch of different reasons where low estrogen can impair optimal functioning in the hippocampus and brain regions and other brain regions that are responsible for learning and for registering. We'll be back after a quick break. Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems. Classic functional medicine back to basics health tips and special updates from the best doctors in the United States of America. Check out this health and wellness podcast shows. Explore Health Talk Weekly, Healthy Lifestyle Matters, Excellent Health Digest, 
healthy and free daily and last but not least. Weekly Health and Fitness Corner. Also, check out Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told Fiction Podcast, for that real life on the go experience with the 27-year-old golden boy, who made our guest invite number one list. He tells us about his story as it happens in real time and in real life. It's Nasty Boy CC The Truest Story Never Told. Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show. And now, back to our episode. And retrieving new information and for language and executive function. That is Great. So I was going to ask you about some of these objective findings. So can you talk a little bit about the type of testing that you're doing and what you find when somebody is complaining of brain fog or shifts in their cognitive capabilities? Generally, you cannot do what's called a mini mental status exam or a Montreal cognitive assessment, which are simple screening tools to look for cognitive problems because menopausal women especially the ones that I see in my office are usually very, very highly functioning women who reached like the peak of their careers because of their ability to articulate, because of their ability to convey their thoughts into sentences that are then actionable. So when you suddenly find that you're struggling for words, when you suddenly find that you cannot multitask something that you prided yourself on, when you find that you can't really hold a conversation or hold the thread of an idea long enough to be able to express it, it's very disconcerting. The kind of testing can't just be simple rudimentary screening tests. It has to be a fairly involved neurocognitive evaluation, a structured evaluation that can last three to four hours. And during that time, your brain gets taken out for a test drive. You basically get pushed to your limits in terms of different aspects of your memory your visual memory, your verbal memory, your working memory, your language skills, your executive function skills, your visual spatial skills, your attention span, your motivation. So we check all these different areas and then we weave a map of your cognitive function and we look at it and we say, what does this pattern look like? And I have to tell you, the pattern of cognitive loss that you see in perimenopause, where patients have trouble with learning lists and their auditory memory, and they have trouble with coming up with words, word-finding problems, and they may have some multitasking executive function deficits. That's all similar to what we would see in very, very early Alzheimer's. So if you are not aware that this can occur in perimenopause and menopause, Patients can be misdiagnosed. And I've seen this in my practice. I've seen women who've been misdiagnosed, including my very first patient, that I was guilty of misdiagnosing because I didn't know that these kinds of changes can occur in perimenopause and menopause. And again, perimenopause is a period of up to seven years prior to actual menopause. And menopause is when you no longer have a period and then you have to not have had it for a year and then you're officially in menopause. One, I'm not responsible if you have an uptick of people trying to fill your schedule for these extensive neuropsychiatric tests. But number two, do these deficits self-correct without intervention over time? 
And so for your patient, the one that you had earlier diagnosed with Alzheimer's, would she have at some point self-corrected and on her own come back to previous functioning? That's a good question, Neha. And the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes not. The brain has this process called learned non-use, which our grandmothers used to say, you know, if you don't use it, you lose it. So learned non-use is where brain will no longer continue to access an area that's becoming more difficult. So what I've found is in women who have trouble, say, finding words and they have an extensive vocabulary, they have a great verbal lexicon to draw from, what ends up happening is that they start to use simpler words and they're okay with the simpler words. And after a while, you get used to using the simpler words. So for some people, accommodate the change in function and they're fine with it. A few people actually are able to go back to prior level of functioning and some people don't accommodate and continue to feel the effects of this reduced functioning. And they're the ones I see in my office. And also the other thing to realize is women who are going through this are in their 40s and 50s. So they're actually literally in the sandwich between their kids and their parents. And not as an insignificant number of them are having parents who are going through memory problems and may have a dementia. So the fear factor is a big deal. When the person starts to have cognitive issues, they say, oh, my God, what's happening to me? The same thing that's happened to mom or what happened to dad. And the fear can be overwhelming and the anxiety can be overwhelming. And sometimes just going over the process and showing them that, listen, this has nothing to do with what your mom and dad are having or this has nothing to do with incipient dementia. That in and of itself is so helpful sometimes to patients. If I'm trying to pull some of these threads together, we're thinking about first educating people and knowing that this is possible in perimenopause and menopause in terms of brain fog and cognitive decline in certain realms of cognitive health. We're thinking about what that means in terms of the types of symptoms you're having, what the evaluation can look like from a primary care perspective. I definitely also would like some baseline labs. So think about that, you know, your thyroid, B12, just baseline labs also just to make sure there's nothing else going on that can be sort of fixed from that standpoint. So then the provider knows, the patient knows, we're all kind of on the same page that this is a possibility. What do we do? What should we be advising? I think you bring up a very good point. So I had put together some criteria for what I call menopause-related cognitive impairment, acronym MERCI, M-E-R-C-I, and published this in the Journal of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. And basically what we want to say is that the person has a subjective change in their thinking. They have a sense that their thinking has changed, that it's persistent and over for at least 12 months. And it's not related to other factors. You know, there are multiple other factors, as you mentioned, that could cause cognitive impairment, including, as we discussed earlier, lack of sleep, et cetera, but also things like thyroid dysfunction, depression, et cetera. And so you want to make sure that there's nothing like that. You don't necessarily have to have laboratory evidence of low estrogen because the best indication that you're in perimenopause is a change in your period in terms of the duration of the period, in terms of the quality of the menses, the amount of fluid, et cetera. So it doesn't have to be that you have to have low estrogen levels in the blood. And then you have to have objective evidence on testing 
of at least one to two cognitive areas where there's a difference from what we think of as your baseline. And there's no evidence of, as we mentioned, other medical conditions. So that would then be the criteria for menopause-related cognitive impairment. And I also wanted to quickly mention, because I just love this, that even though, as you say, we need to raise awareness, back in 1871, when medicine was still, in many ways, not as evidence-based, an English physician called Tilt described the changes in 500 menopausal women. And I'm going to read some of the things he said. Back in 1871, it's the shame that 150 years later, we're still trying to let women know that this could happen to you. We're still trying to let neurologists know and physicians know that this could happen. Although I have to say most obstetric gynecologists are well aware of this phenomenon. So he was writing in 1871 and he said, there's almost always a partial paralysis of cerebral power. He wrote that women lose confidence in themselves. They're unable to manage domestic or other business. They have a feeling as if a cloud or a cobweb is required to be brushed from the brain. And that's something I've often heard women will say to me, you know, it feels like I have a cloud. It feels like there's a web. And then he also writes, women forget where they put their purse. Sometimes they forget their way home. 1871, 500 menopausal women. And how come all these years later, we're still trying to make it happen? We're still trying to let women know. So I think it's sad, but hopefully within the next few years, it'll become more common knowledge. That is amazing. Those descriptions are phenomenal. And I just love actually looking at phenotype descriptions from yesteryear in medicine because the descriptions are just so vivid. And connect so much more with words and language with the experience than a lot of what we do with our sort of objective ticking of boxes. So in terms of action, I'm just sort of thinking in my own life. And often I feel like I just need like a systems overhaul. All of those mechanisms I'd set up to remind myself of tasks or to get things done. It's just like that is out the window. And now it's just much more concrete where I'm just like every day, each individual task I'm writing on a piece of paper for each kid. I've got their own colored sticky note and I still mess up on the regular naps. I'm curious about naps. I did a lot of research in my undergrad career on naps and memory. And I feel like because of that cobweb feeling, I often just feel that way sometimes in the middle of the day where it's just like if I could just get a few minutes to shut my eyes and maybe even sleep, I would feel better. And I do, you know, on the weekends when I am able to do that. And then just other therapy. This is now something to consider hormone replacement therapy, depending on your individual risk. Are there other treatments we should be thinking about? I completely agree that sleep is one of the most important things for good memory consolidation, for good brain functioning, and just actually even for preventing neurodegenerative disease like dementia down the road, a good night's sleep, which sadly women in this age group don't have enough of. So anything that can promote sleep is a wonderful idea. Hormone therapy is not recommended. So the North American Menopause Society, their official stance is that hormone therapy should not be used for treatment of cognitive loss in women going through menopause. My personal stance is, yes, I do believe that hormone therapy can be and should be used on an individual basis, depending on the woman and her risk factors. 
because I believe that cognitive loss is a very common symptom of menopause. And to me, it makes little sense why we would treat one symptom of menopause, like hot flashes with hormone therapy, but not another symptom with hormone therapy. And many women do respond to that. Some women are afraid of the use of hormones and don't want to go on it. And in those women, you know, just cognitive retraining, brain exercises targeted at those parts of the brain kind of overcome the concept of learned non-use and force those areas of the brain to re-engage, kind of like physical therapy for the brain. I did an early study in the early aughts using donapazole, which is a cholinesterase inhibitor, to see if that would help women going through menopause with their cognitive symptoms. And there were trends that it did. But again, there was no statistically significant improvement in the two very small study with 25 women, you know, randomized to drug versus placebo. So those are different things. And then physical exercise, aerobic physical exercise is always fantastic for any kind of cognitive loss because it promotes synaptogenesis, synaptic sprouting all over the brain, including the hippocampus. Those are different ways you could help. And anything that helps with sleep and hot flashes. And I know now there are new medications available for hot flashes in the GYN world. That will also help a woman not wake up drowning in her own sweat at night. And that helps keep your memory going. As a lifestyle medicine, internal medicine doc, this just warms my heart. Because I think, again, there's no situation in which getting restful night sleep, increasing physical activity, being mindful of nutritious whole foods that you're putting into your body, trying to figure out ways of managing your stress and avoiding substances like cigarettes, too much alcohol and other things like that, that can also impair your functioning. There's no situation in which that doesn't help. And then having social connection to your point of just making sure that we're keeping those synapses active in every way possible is going to be helpful. So to not shy away from that. I am just so thankful to you for your time for this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I think it's an important topic. I feel evangelical about this, and I think it's so important that you're bringing it to the attention of more women. Before I let you go, I would love it if we could end with actionable, bite-sized things that people can do. So what are some of your one or two tips for things that someone who's listening can do today or this week if they're dealing with this? I would say they should speak to their GYN about possibly going on hormones, even for six months to a year. I would say they should try to sleep better. I would say they can exercise, aerobic exercise. And then if they have the ability to get a baseline cognitive evaluation, that's something to do because it's just a nice way to learn about your brain and then prepare it for the next three or four decades so that you can strengthen those areas that maybe need a little strength. Thank you so much, Dr. Debbie, for being with us today. I know for me, the take home has been one, this is a marathon. So we're not planning around just a few months or a few years. We're, as you said, trying to plan for decades of life to come after the perimenopause and menopause transition. I think, again, to your point, anything you can do to firm up your resources, food, sleep, exercise, cognitive activity, all of that is the foundation for good health, whether that's cognitive health or otherwise. So I think you can't go wrong with that. And then really having an individual discussion with your provider around other types of treatments that you may not have considered, like hormone replacement therapy, if that fits within what works for you, 
and is in the right time frame for you for a safe profile, I think is also a great idea. So we've talked with Dr. Gayathri Devi today. To find out more information about her, please visit www.nybrain.org. Thank you so much for listening. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. We have a great show today, but first, take a second to make sure you've subscribed to our show wherever you're listening to podcasts. It's the best way to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. Thanks. Please take a moment to follow, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.